This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're very pleased to have uh, acting superstar and a musician in his own right. Uh, in, And he's got a new uh, business venture that on, on a morning when it's minus 13 wind chill, and he'll appreciate giving the Celsius temperature instead of Fahrenheit, although I think he figured that out pretty early on in his days. Uh, there's a beautiful bottle of Red Bank whiskey separating us right now, and one of us is going to grab for it first. But Kiefer Sutherland is with us in the studio in Toronto today. It's great to have you in. We were hoping you would be. We didn't want to jinx it. I know you're doing some other stops this morning, but thanks for making time well, for our audience. My gosh, thank you for making time for me, and thanks for the very kind introduction. Tell us about Red Bank. You're doing something as well at the at the LCBO just down the street on Queens Key. Um, what is it about the people that you got involved with? What is it about this particular combination that got you so excited to to be involved? Well, I, it, it was one of those things. It was hardly a plan. I had a I had a dear friend named Gary Briggs who was uh, very high up at, at Warner Brothers Music, and we'd known each other through musicians, uh, and we'd been very good friends for almost thirty five years. And he was friends with a guy named Rob Steele, who is a very successful business guy out in the eastern provinces in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And they wanted, and were talking about potentially doing a Canadian whiskey, and asked if I would get involved. And I was so excited about the idea, and, and not because it was a whiskey, although that's kind of a fantastic <laughs> side benefit, but I was very excited about the potential of creating what I thought was a really class A product to represent Canada around the world. Um, you know, when I talk to people about Canada and I show them pictures of the, the difference between British Columbia and the maritime provinces and the diversity of its topography, and then I get to explain that the, that diversity extends also to its people, and it's, it's a place that I'm so proud to be from. The idea of being able to take a product that I think uh, is, is world-class uh, and be able to take that around the world and kind of show it off as, as something from Canada was something that I was very excited in. And then we started kind of developing the product, and that took about five or six years. And it really is uh, my favorite whiskey uh, to have. <laughs> I've, yeah. enjoyed a, I've enjoyed a few over the years, yeah. uh, but it's something we're really, really proud of. It's a Red Bank Whiskey. People can go to redbankwhiskey.com, find out more, and Canadian Wheat. Yes, Canadian wheat and rye, and uh, and and what's really interesting, and this I ho- I hope this doesn't bore everybody to tears, but there are two components that have to be part of a whiskey to make it a Canadian whiskey, and it has to have a wheat profile and it has to have a rye profile, and a lot of Canadian whiskeys, uh, Crown Royal, uh, uh, Canadian Club, they start to kind of have a flavor profile of of kind of Southern American whiskeys, and okay. that's because they have a very high rye content. And, and I thought, well, what if we kind of went back towards Scotland and kind of uh, went that route? Okay. And so we have, a, we have a very low rye profile in our Canadian whiskey, but we have a very, the highest allowed wheat profile. And so it, it tends to feel kind of like a, a, a lighter scotch. It's not a heavy single malt kind of feel. Um, but it's a really, really interesting profile. And, and, and so far, uh, Ontario and Quebec are the last two provinces that we are, are, are distributing in now. Um, but the reaction to it over the last six months uh, in the other areas of Canada has been fantastic. Amazing. Um, Kiefer Sutherland's with us on Toronto Today. I'm going to give you, we could talk about so much of your work that's uh, compelled me and compelled people. Please, because I've run out but, of everything I know about whiskey. I do I do want to let you know a little, a little Brady household moment where I showed my sons for the first time JFK. 
because it was the 60th anniversary of the assassination yeah. last week and know how into politics you are. And this amazing scene with your dad that yeah. goes on for about 14 minutes yeah. on a bench with Kevin Costner. Yeah. And that always just, when that's on television, that yeah. stops me cold. Yeah. Cause think about all the stars, John Candy, fellow Canadian, Kevin Bacon, mm -hmm. so many stars in that movie. Mm -hmm. But I watch your dad's scene and it, I'm back in the theater in 1991. It's remarkable. Well, he has, you know, He's not only is he one of the most prolific actors in the English language. If you take a look at the the depth of his career over sixty years, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. And if you look at the variety from, you know, uh, Fellini's Casanova to Animal House to right. JFK to yeah. Kelly's Heroes to Mash to really significant films in the in in the late sixties and early seventies, um, and to Academy Award winner Ordinary People. I mean, this incredibly diverse career. But one of the great skills that he has is just simply that of an orator. He is a really, really wonderful speaker. And to be able to take a scene like that where he's delivering exposition for 14 minutes, uh, where it's just one fact after another, uh, yeah. and somehow still make it into a story is a really extraordinary gift. And it's, uh, you're not the first person to oh. tell me about that scene and acknowledge that scene. Actors have come up to me ever since that scene was done and, and told them how inspiring they found that work of his. And 70% of it is Oliver Stone's visual. So his voice is underneath, but then yeah. there's a, those cutbacks to Costner and his reaction yeah. to it. And every time, it's like when you, you see an old sporting event, you're like, it might end up differently this time. That ball might not go through Bill Buckner's legs, but it eventually, every time Costner's character, Jim Garrison, asks him to testify, I'm hoping he says. Right, he yeah. says it different. <laughs> I'm hoping he says, yes, I really am. Um, your music career as well. Uh, Blur Street was an album you put out at the start of last year, January 22. But we were so off again, on again with touring. And I know you're yeah. already, are, you know, you didn't get a, uh, as much of a chance as you would like to to play a lot of those songs live, but you're already back and potentially working on another album next year. Yeah, it was, it was just really unfortunate. Uh, I, I was one of those people that thought that everybody would isolate and this whole thing would be over in six weeks, right? And so by the, I, I picked January, uh, you know, it was almost eight months after the pandemic had started because I thought I was going to be really safe. Yeah. And of course, uh, the the second variant had come about and and wiped out a tour for us in Europe and, and wiped out uh, a Canadian tour uh, for us as well. Uh, so it's it, it was frustrating to say the least. But I, I mean, I think everybody uh, was incredibly frustrated by that time period. And 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 then obviously other people lost everything, right? And so my heart breaks for those people. And and yeah. all you can do is kind of pick up and start again. Uh, very excited. I'm going to make a record uh, uh, with a wonderful producer, Ethan Johns, who's produced some of my favorite albums, uh, um, Ray LaMontagne's Trouble, uh, Ryan Adams' Gold. So just uh, Oh, he did that one? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's my favorite Ryan Adams album. That's yeah, amazing. An extraordinary producer, uh, just sonically, uh, just has an ear that's incredibly special, but musically just understands melody in a way that, uh, that I'm just excited yeah. to be with him in a room. And so start that in January. Uh, I've been doing a lot of writing up until that point. And, and also now that the strike is over, uh, a lot of things that were in development before the strike are now coming to fruition. And so hopefully it will be a busy year <laughs> to make up for some downtime. You were seeing a, a photo of uh, David Bowie out in the hallway here yeah. from 1983 when, when he really just got, he was everywhere with, with Let's Dance as an album and playing mm. the stadiums instead of smaller places. 
were you a huge concert Toronto uh, person when you were growing up? I wasn't a huge concert person, uh, I, but I did seem to go to concerts that made a deep impression. Um, for instance, uh, I went to a Teenage Head concert down at Ontario Place. Hamilton's own. And, and I watched a bunch of kids flip a streetcar. <laughs> And I remember I thinking, shouldn't laugh at that. I'm sorry. I, I remember thinking, that's so un-Canadian. And you didn't help? <laughs> I did not. I was in shock. And I, I just was like, I, first of all, I couldn't believe they lifted it and got it moving. But they were rocking it back and forth. And then finally it toppled over. And I was like, I can't believe that just happened. Um, but uh, I, I did go to that David Bowie concert. Uh, that's for sure. And Didn't, uh, didn't flip a streetcar after that on that occasion. No, that was very civilized. <laughs> <laughs> that was at the X, so yeah, no, much more civilized. Have, has your band played? I know you've played the Phoenix. Have you played Massey Hall before? Oh my gosh, no, no. It's that, that's, oh, uh, we got. How can we help that make well, that happen? Well, well, I'll have to be able to put a record out <laughs> that I can actually tour in Canada and, and and try and build a base. But but yeah, one of my one of my favorite places in the world, and and I have not been in there. Uh, since it was redone, so I can't wait to go see a show there. It's quite something. The beer lineups are just as long, and probably the whiskey lineups for Red Bank as well will be just as long as uh, as they used to be. Fingers crossed. Um, I, I loved. Um, I'm going to tell you this. I loved uh, Rabbit Hole, and oh, thank I, and you I very was much. here, and you got to see so much of Toronto. You'd watch it with your kids, and you're like, you know, right where we are along Queen's yeah, Key. Yeah. A lot of the car stuff, right? Yeah. You have a hostage. Briefly, I don't want to give too much away if people want to check out the season of it. But you were back in Toronto promoting it. But you must have spent a lot of time here filming it in the ups and downs of the we, streets it was we, very urban drama yeah we did um and, and and actually designated survivor before we shot three seasons of that here in toronto yeah. we shot rabbit hole in toronto um which was fantastic because my sister lives here i have a place here and so it was uh you know it's, it's it's like coming home right um but it what i what i really did enjoy about rabbit hole is they kind of didn't go very far out of their way to try and pretend it was something other than, you know, they showed Toronto for Toronto. Yeah. And, and it looked great. And, uh, yeah, it's, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed working here. Uh, the two different crews that I've worked with, uh, in Toronto have been mm. a level, uh, fantastic. And so, yeah. People have loved when you've, um, I guess, I suppose we're a talk station, but we, when, when we, when someone like you says something emphatic about politics and you're so committed to, uh, your beliefs and your, uh, your ideology. And when, so like you've made comments about healthcare before in the province, mm -hmm. people really like that. Cause you've, I, I lived in the States for 10 years. You've lived, you do see both sides of it and you see a sort of bottom that could, people could potentially pull through in the states if they don't have coverage and, and you've been such a i just wanted to thank you you're such a strong advocate well, for saying there's got to be a better way to do it i i grew there there is and 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 i grew up in in that world and so you know you you become shaped by your surroundings having said that i went to theater school in the united states and i was coming back uh with a friend of mine and uh she was from Toronto as well, and we were coming back from New York City, and we were driving, and she had asthma, and she had a severe asthma attack, and we were just outside of Buffalo, and I saw a sign for a hospital, and she was in real trouble, and she did not, her inhaler had run out. Oh, my. And, How long ago? Uh, this is in 1983. Okay. And I made a beeline for the hospital, and with what little air she had, she grabbed my arm and said, no, get across the border because we couldn't afford it, we didn't have any money. Um, 
and we did. We got a, she said she could make it, and we did. We got across the border, and the person at the border was incredibly helpful and just said, go, 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 get, and this mm. is the direction of the hospital. But what it did for me is it made me realize that going to a hospital in the United States for someone who did not have insurance or cash was a very scary proposition uh, and a pro proposition of, of kind of, of potential real debt. And so on a very kind of micro level, I experienced a personal experience that showed me how scary that could be. Yeah. Um, having said that, there, there, are, there are lines and, and people are waiting for health care in, in areas of Canada that, that are just simply unacceptable. Uh, you know, the cost management is something that has to be addressed. And, and uh, all I can say is that in my experience in 1971, 72, 73, when Canada was thought of as having the greatest healthcare system in the world, it was requiring one quarter of the federal budget. And so unless people are willing to accept that as it. a reality, then you're going to have a healthcare system that's going to be compromised. Uh, having said that, mm. no more compromise than that in the U.S. because the healthcare system in the United States is available only to very, very wealthy people. Yeah. And look, it's, it's a huge problem, and I'm certainly not pretending that I've got the answers. I can only say that over the course of my life, which is seemingly longer and longer, when I look back 40 years, uh, yeah. I, I can see a difference, right? And, yeah. and, and those are policy issues, and those are people making decisions uh, about what is financially more important yeah. to, to them yeah. than... than, than then maybe someone else. Keep saying things because I think it matters and, and people do want to hear you when, oh, well, when thank you do you. weigh Thanks. in. Uh, it's Red Bank Whiskey. You can go to redbankwhiskey.com. Such a pleasure to have you in. I know mm. it's very spontaneous, but you made the time for us and I will, I will pleasure, remember man. it and appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. And and uh, stay safe out there on stay, the road. Stay warm. You can help me uh, when I get home. When I get home. Uh, redbankwhiskey.com. There's a great key for Sutherland joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This is a structural change that will unlock billions over the next 10 years. But of course, it doesn't take us all the way there. That's why I'm very thankful the province and the city have agreed to continue this conversation. Over the next few years, we'll continue to examine the city's finances and working on Toronto's long-term financial sustainability. There's a ton on that deal yesterday between Olivia Chow, the mayor, uh, and Doug Ford, the premier, in terms of a provincial and uh, municipal relationship. Again, are other municipalities going to say, where's ours today or tomorrow or the next day? It's very, very possible. And so much of this has been about, ah, the DVP and the Eglinton vis-a-vis -vis Ontario place, but there's a ton more that's there. There's new subway trains. There's cash that's been saved that to go to other specific transit projects. So we'll see where this goes. It doesn't mean you're not getting a big property tax increase either because a lot of that money that gets saved has to be funneled back into what Olivia Chow wants to build, quote-unquote, affordable housing. Let's talk to April Engelberg about it. I know she's excited to get into some of the details of it. It's great to have you on, and what a story yesterday. We were waiting for the big news and the results and whatnot. What were your initial thoughts seeing what had happened yesterday, April? Good morning, Greg. Um, I think on one hand, it's definitely great for the city. So we're seeing that both the gardener and the DVP being uploaded to the province. So that's great news for the city because we can't afford to keep them on our own, right? On the other side, um, for Olivia Chow supporters, 
that's not one of her campaign promises, right? What, what she was saying is, let's reconsider the gardener. Let's reconsider this portion of the gardener and how we rebuild it. So that's one thing that's different for her, um, that it'll be interesting to see what her supporters have to say about it. Um, and then in terms of Ontario Place, basically not surprising to me because the whole fight about Ontario Place the city doesn't own the vast, vast majority of the land. We don't own this tiny, tiny sliver. And the province could do whatever they wanted with it. But basically, the agreement is that Olivia Chow, on behalf of the city, is no longer putting up any sort of a fight over Ontario Place. And that will also be interesting to see what her supporters have to say, because that's not part of her campaign promise. It was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've seen it already. Haven't, haven't you, April, is that Olivia Chow supporters are like, oh, she promises this promise to that. But I see the same criticism um, for Doug Ford. You and I know there's probably there's conservatives in the city of Toronto that say, ah, oh, Doug Ford's not conservative enough. So I, I just think people have forgotten how you do need to kind of come to the middle and make deals with people to give give taxpayers what they want. Exactly. So I personally think it's a great deal for the city because it's not much of a concession for Ontario Place, right? It's just, we're not going to fight it anymore. But the reality is the province could have done whatever they wanted. And the reality is we couldn't, we couldn't afford to keep the highways. And then one more detail, which is on the Ontario Science Centre. No longer is the city going to be fighting to keep the, the Ontario Science Centre where it previously was. We'll be accepting that it will be moving and trying to keep some of the programming at the current uh, at the current location. But it, it's definitely a, a good deal for the city overall because we needed we needed these funds. And you think about all the capital during the last mayoral by-election, all the time, the ink, the airtime that was spent on those, those two issues you mentioned, Ontario oh Place, God, yeah. because people get passionate about it, but also the Science Center. It felt like it was the only story for four or five days out of a 40-day campaign. And and it was it was probably never really in the city's control to do much about it. I couldn't agree more. I think it's very silly how much of the mayoral election was spent around Ontario Place, considering that we don't own the land. So I think going forward in mayoral elections, uh, we should just be be more harsh on candidates and say, like, do we actually have control over this issue? Um, if not, can we move on to something that's in our control? So yes, it, it's definitely, it's in my opinion, it's time to accept this deal and to make it to accept the new deal for Toronto. Was, was there a move to be made, do you think, on on the gardener? Um, Josh Matlow talked about tearing the gardener down. Olivia Chow talked about leveling it at the minimum and uh, and not having it. it. Of course, it's unsightly, depending on your vantage point. We all have been under it and we think this is this doesn't look like a world class city uh, and, and a highway that belongs to a world class city. But it's that sunk cost fallacy, isn't it, that we all learn about in school? They've they put so many tens of millions of dollars in already. Am I right? It just seemed like one of those things where you've got to keep going with it. And if you come from out east like I do, I'm telling you how vital it is to get people into an already crowded city. Yeah, definitely. And so it, it just wasn't a fight that Toronto could afford to to have about whether or not we were going to redo the gardener. It just we we just couldn't afford it. But what what I will say from this whole new deal for Toronto, my opinion is I don't like when different levels of government fight with each other of who's paying for what, like you, you pay for this, you pay for this. Oh, we got this deal. You're, what? If, for me, it's, it's really all tax money, right? We're just, they're just getting it from us in different ways. And I personally find as a citizen that it's, 
it's just annoying and a waste of time to hear different levels of government fighting over who's paying for what. Where do you think it goes with housing? Because in all this, um, one of the big stories late last week, and I know you commented on it, was finding out that Toronto had asked the federal government to, to use as shelters uh, a couple of the armories, including Fort York. There was an mm-hmm. offer for the federal government to open it up. And mm-hmm. I, again, we'd had other people talking to us about it saying as of last Saturday, like nine days ago, they could have started using those particular armies, armories in Toronto, turned the offer down. They've got to find a better way than this. And like it, it just goes against that sort of take what you can get principle. When that story happened last week, how did it make you observe things? Definitely. So what I said is I'm tired of watching our homeless population being used as political pawns in the city. And that's what I find keeps on happening. So it started with the asylum seekers when it was who's going to pay for their housing. And then it ended up being a church that stepped up that isn't being fully compensated for what they're putting in to house newcomers to the city. And in this case, it was the city that came out and said, we need the federal government to open the armories because we don't have enough shelter space. And then the federal government said, okay, we'll do that for a month and we'll give you money for in the interim to open up the Better Living Center at Exhibition Place to turn that into a temporary shelter that could actually house a lot of people. And the story is that the city turned it down. My guess is because they want more money or them to open the armories for longer, but I don't think that's acceptable. Yeah. Just keep going back and forth. Um, in the last time we got, uh, yesterday, I saw a news story about um, University Avenue being closed, and we mentioned it yesterday, how southbound it's going to go down to one lane. There's going to be notable restrictions, and this is not a one- or two-week project. This could be months even going into next summer. But I saw in the news story that Toronto paramedics are really worried about all this construction surrounding Hospital Row. They actually documented in the video that there were two ambulances unable to get past traffic in just a 30-minute span. So this is going to jam up the regular commuters. It's going to be tough to get to Queen's Park. It's also going to be tough for people to get to their appointments and for ambulances to get where they need to go. Definitely. And I went to go check it out yesterday. And what I will say is on a portion of it where it's reduced, there's still cars, which I'm guessing are like construction cars, that are parked. So that's, in my opinion, not right. We should keep, even if it's just keeping two lanes open for longer, it's not safe to just to have one lane open on in the hospital area. We need to have room for ambulances to go by. And that's what you're, so you saw, did you see any ambulances get disrupted or having to wait patiently to be able to get where they needed to go? I didn't. I, I did yeah. a quick little check, but I, there were cars that were parked illegally. That is what I will say. Yeah, that's such a good point. We need some kind of shuttle or something to get the workers there. The cars, and I get that they have to work. They want it, They want to be convenient, but there has to be a better way than plugging up the artery with their own individual cars. But that's a story for yeah. another day. April, love your insight as always. Thanks very much for this. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. You bet. That's April Engelberg joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Jeff McCausland joins us now, and he's been on before, retired Army colonel and military analyst. It's great to have you back here in Toronto. Thanks very much. Greg, it's good to be with you. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like uh, like normal times. Um, we had about 50-something days where it was constant, a barrage, fighting, great debate about tactics and whatnot. I'm pleased, so pleased to see families being reunited. But can this go on much longer, Jeff? Well, apparently it's going to go on for two more days. After that, of course, it's problematical. There has been some suggestion that if Hamas will continue to release 10 prisoners per day, it might be extended beyond that. But I think the Israeli government is going to be under increasing pressure in some quarters 
to return to warfare because obviously the longer this pause goes on, the more international pressure will go for an actual truce and some kind of negotiation. And that's certainly contrary to what Mr. Netanyahu has said is the Israeli government's final objective, which is the outright destruction of Hamas. I'd hate to put ourselves in Hamas shoes. It feels uh, morally perilous to be there, but they clearly have a tactic here to, to stretch this out, reload, re-engage and reload, um, maybe rebuild some things because they've been obviously getting obliterated. A lot of their infrastructure has been getting sought out and obliterated. But, Jeff, I also look and say they can't afford to run out of hostages. Then it's open season on them, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. The most important card they have to play in this particular very, very deadly game is, of course, the hostages and time. I think the longer they can stretch it out again, the more international pressure, which has shifted really very enormously away from Israel. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. fascinating to think that back on the 7th of October, the whole globe supported Israel after this horrific attack by Hamas. And then in a very matter of a few weeks, based on this really unbelievable heavy bombardment by the Israelis against the Gaza Strip, a lot of public opinion has shifted in the opposite direction. None of the other Arab nations seem involved in this. None of the other nations seem to want this. And I say that for two reasons. They don't seem to want to engage militarily with what's happening. It doesn't mean they won't fire rockets. Uh, we're seeing that from Yemen. Uh, we're seeing that at, at, at times from uh, Iran. But they, Jeff, they don't want into this conflict inside Israel. They also de- don't seem to want to welcome Palestinians across their border. Are either of those things surprising to you? No, not really at all. I mean, in the past, we've seen a lot of talk by the Arab nations, but not really a lot of, a lot of action, particularly in hosting uh, refugees. I think you're quite right. The one I've been watching most carefully, really, are Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, who had begun some artillery mortar barrages against Israel, forcing about 125,000 Israelis to evacuate their homes in northern Israel as well. Well, that is paused as soon as this particular pause went into effect. And the speeches given by Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, I would summarize it, saying, we're behind you and we'll fight this war to the last Palestinian, but not really terribly interested in being involved. The other area that I've, I've become concerned about, of course, is mm. continued attacks against American bases in Iraq and Syria. There were about 74 attacks against those bases, resulting in a number of injuries, but none of those have been serious. Those attacks, too, have been paused once these attacks, uh, once the, the pause went into effect between Israel and Hamas. You have been to war, and the majority of our listeners, and certainly myself, have not. We can't understand um, the the emotional uh, toll it takes, but also the complexities from a purely military aspect. Somebody who hasn't been to war as well, though, I watched on the weekend, is the actor Sean Penn. But I will tell you, I thought he made a point I wanted to run past you in that this is so much more difficult to do this in an urban setting and not just get hostages back. It was one thing after 9-11 where um, the, you know, you saw the Taliban flee into the mountains outside of major cities. They didn't have any hostages. It was a lot easier to sort of seek and destroy for for the um, the coalition at that point in time than to go into cities here. Can you explain just how much more difficult that job is uh, for, for Israel right now? It's exponentially much more difficult. I mean, think about it. Uh, the Gaza Strip is about si- twice the size geographically of Las Vegas, Nevada. That's 2.2 million people. That works out to be about over 10,000 people per square mile. And as you're conducting military operations in very closely packed urban areas, the advantages you have in terms of heavy armor, artillery, or in some cases artillery, but tanks and whatever, uh, those are obviously depleted as you're having to go door to door. I was in Fallujah shortly after we seized that from 
insurgents uh, in Iraq, a city of only mm. 200,000 people. We had to go door to door, room to room, closet to closet, every basement, every attic, making sure that uh, there were not insurgents. They hadn't left weapons or explosives behind. So it's an enormously complicated problem and made even more difficult, of course, by two other things. When you do this massive bombardment, then you fill the streets full of rubble. That's what the Israelis have done. And don't forget, last but not least, some estimate there are 200 miles of tunnels and a tunnel yeah. network. Under the Gaza Strip, another factor you've got to deal with. Really something. Uh, it's uh, it's incredible to talk to you. Jeff McCausland, military analyst, retired Army colonel. Thanks so much for your insight today for our audience, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Brad Bradford, city councillor, and he ran for mayor in the recent by-election, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. Good morning. Good morning, Greg. Um, you described Mayor Chow's approach to getting this deal done as pragmatic. You came with praise for Mayor Chow. What did she do well in negotiating with the province, Brad? Well, you know what? I think for Mayor Chow, this is a significant reversal on three of her major campaign commitments. And I'm commending her for that because I'm sure uh, this is kind of going over like a bag of hammers with some of her supporters. Um, but it's never too late to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, you can't just be the mayor for the people that elected you. You have to do the right thing for everybody. So seeing her move on on the gardener, it's no secret that she actually wanted to tear that down, slam that elevated highway to grade on Lakeshore. That would have been, you know, just traffic madness for everyone in the East End. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only are we not tearing it down, but it is being uploaded by the province something that City Hall had called for decades uh, for the province to really assume the the uh, capital expenses for that 400 series highway. The second thing, Greg, was, was really acknowledging that Ontario Place is in fact provincial lands under provincial jurisdiction. She had really dug in her heels during the campaign saying, you know, she was going to take this thing to the wall, fight all the way on it. Uh, we knew at the time, and we know now that legally there mm. there was really nothing that the city could do. So, so she's acknowledging that. And then thirdly, you know, a commitment to improve safety on the TTC. Myself and others felt that more police in the stations and on the trains was a net helpful thing to do. The package also includes uh, funding for that from the province as well. So I'm sure it wasn't easy, but it was it was the right thing to do. And, you know, we have to commend her for that. I want to lock in on that. Does this almost commit the city to increasing their police budget, both through provincial money and the money uh, in the city of Toronto itself? Well, I guess you could say... Uh, we are going to see more resources there now. Now, part of that money will certainly be coming from the province, and they've indicated that. Uh, and again, I think we, when when the TCC was really in chaos last February, you saw that police on the system were helpful. Uh, the province is stepping up and saying, "Look, we we agree with that. We're going to put some more money to it." Would the city roll back their commitments? Would the you know would the mayor fund it less because the province is funding it more? Uh, I would hope not because there's still a lot of need out there for our neighborhood police officer programs and other things. But certainly this helps on the budget side. Brad Bradford, our guest. I want to double back and play a clip from Olivia Chow. I want the public uh, and the listeners to hear this as well. This was her talking about Ontario Place. She filmed a video on a paddleboard. Here's what she said. It's absolutely gorgeous to be out in the water right now, especially in Ontario Place. The lake connects all of us from Scarborough to Etobicoke. So many people come down here to play, to contemplate, to just watch the waves on the water. 
Our connection to the land and water is what makes Toronto special. As the mayor, I will not back down on keeping Ontario Place public. So you're part of that campaign. She says that. She was very committed to this. So was uh, fellow candidate Josh Matlow. You kind of called this out for what you thought it was, impractical and improbable. You were right and she was wrong, correct? Well, it's not, you know, it's not about being right or wrong, but again, we were well aware and anyone who had been following the issue closely, as, as the premier has famously said, and, you know, Mayor Chow echoed back yesterday, it's Ontario Place, not Toronto Place. The the real action is is about doing a, a planning framework with both Exhibition Place on the north side of Lakeshore and Ontario Place. But you listen to that clip, it's very consistent with her campaign, it's very consistent with with her approach today. And, you know, it's what people are calling governing by vibes and it's a positive vibe. And I'm a lakefront counselor myself. You know, we love the waterfront. It's, it's a real jewel here in the city. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the legal ramifications matter. The property rights matter. The jurisdictions matter. And, and so again, I would commend the mayor for walking that back um, because at the end of the day, you have to be the mayor for everybody leadership matters and uh, it's never too late to do the right thing and and this new deal is certainly a great deal for the city of toronto and the people who call this city home right and you were you're working with her in union there but you'd be allowed an element of frustration as many of the other candidates had during the campaign saying you're not giving us practical solutions here and there's pie in the sky ideas now three of those pie in the sky ideas she's abandoned in the first five months right well people are going to see it right i mean there there was a campaign and there was a lot of stuff put on the table there from from different candidates. And, you know, you're not necessarily in the building, so you don't have a sense of it. Um, the big one for me was just making sure that the uh, the continuity and the connection of the Gardner and the DVP yeah. remain. Uh, the traffic is such a horror show for all the people out there who are trying to navigate the GTA right now. And the idea that you'd tear down a highway and not rebuild it was ludicrous from day one. She doubled down on that literally the first day in office, saying that she was going to proceed with the teardown. And honestly, Greg, I am relieved that yeah. common sense has prevailed here. Certainly Queen's Park recognizes that they should be commended as well. Um, frankly, it's a highway that they should have always been paying yeah. for. City Council has, has asked the province to upload it, both with the Liberal government prior and this government multiple times. So the Premier should be commended for stepping up on that. And, you know, the mayor should be commended for, uh, I guess, not getting in the way of that common sense solution. Give me 30 seconds. Does this change much on what the city will do for property taxes for next year in terms of raising them? Well, it doesn't uh, it doesn't fill all the gaps. And certainly the federal government's going to have to come to the table, too. I'm almost expecting that this mayor might come forward with a multi-year budget package. So multi-year rates, perhaps mm. one, two, three years of property tax hikes and smack everybody all at once with it. Um, I am, of course, going to be fighting for affordability, standing up for taxpayers and making sure that we're trying to find value for money at the city of Toronto. That's mm. something that the mayor and the administration have been very reticent to look at. I've called for that already. Um, but I think people yeah. still need to buckle up and get ready for tax hikes. Uh, it's definitely going to be more than inflation and life in the city is going to get more expensive before it gets more affordable. Gotcha, Brad. Thanks for the time today.
We'll see you soon, my friend. Brad Bradford joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. So much discussion lately about artificial intelligence and labor. And on the Logic website, they do such phenomenal work about economics and the business relationship with technology. Um, There's a lot of people that have an awful lot of questions about it. I think even university students are thinking, am I getting into a job or getting into a uh, study in the next three or four years where my job could be enhanced by artificial intelligence or replaced by artificial intelligence. So there's a relationship with education, but there certainly is one with labor as well. I want to bring on Martin Patrickwin uh, joining us. He's Quebec correspondent for The Logic. Martin, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. Did I kind of lay that out there uh, properly in that there's an awful lot of people asking questions, and I'm sure they look in the mirror or look at what they do and how their job description is, and they say, Am I replaceable by technology? Maybe more so than ever. Yeah, it's uh, and it's it's an existential question that comes up often whenever there's sort of like a disruptive technology that comes about. Uh, you can think of anything. I mean, you can go back to the steam engine. You can go back to the internal combustion engine. Uh, you can go back to uh, the 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 internet. Everything. Whenever there's a, this sort of like uh, disruptive technology that comes about, there's always some of these questions that come up uh, in the labor force. And I would argue that AI is is bigger than all of them uh, in the sense in the transformative power, potential transformative power uh, of the technology. Yeah. Is it is it varying from geographical region or is this very much it's happening all through North America? It's happening all through Europe. But the, the geography doesn't really factor into densely populated cities, urban versus rural. Does any of that factor in? Uh, I mean, the, the way that it breaks down, I mean, the, the, there is an interesting report done by Glo- uh, Goldman Sachs uh, earlier this year that I cite in the article that talks, about, you know, it basically talks about the, sa- quote unquote, the safest and the least safest. Mm-hmm. And the safest job that you can have, uh, according to this report, was groundskeeping. So effective janitorial services. And I interviewed a guy at McGill who, who runs the janitorial services. And, you know, he just described this day. And there's absolutely nothing in his day short of maybe a little bit of scheduling that can be replaced by AI. There's, it's just, just doesn't happen. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you have jobs like, you know, administrative assistance, uh, uh, certain amount of lawyer work, certain amount of notary work, that kind of thing. Those are almost, you know, imminently replaceable by AI. So it's less geographical. It's more by sort of job and, and occupation. I always, one, in, one industry that always jumps out to me, Martin, is um, I- industries like physiotherapy, being an RMT, getting people better after a surgery. Now, that said, we, <laughs> there's a lot we didn't visualize 20 years ago that's already happening. Maybe we are sitting there and robots are helping us get better after surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels like that's any industry where your hands and that sort of bedside manner matters. That feels like that, that's safer than many others. It's safer than many others. And, and look, the, the union movement, the, the labor movement in, in the country, there's a, there's a sort of like a cliche almost like received wisdom that all the unions are against this. They're, they're petrified that this is going to yeah. replace all sorts of work. It's not necessarily the case. Yes, there are some unions that say that, but, you know, take Unifor, which is the largest private sector union in the country, uh, 310,000 members about. Uh, they wrote a report in 2018 basically saying, look, the sky isn't falling. The chances are you're not going to be replaced by a robot or by AI. You're going to be working alongside it, uh, and it will make your job better. So, but what that requires is a buy-in from from employees, but also very crucial to that is very complete transparency on the part of employers yeah. to sort of say exactly how this technology is going to be implemented, 
uh, a timeline thereof and how exactly it will affect people's jobs. How, uh, if you assuage fears, there's a much better chance of there being adaptability. Yeah, you make such a great point there. I, I wonder how much it's one thing for unions to, you know, 30 percent of Canadian jobs are unionized. So there is potential for pushback. But when we see all these all these new auto uh, deals that Unifor is making with the big three, um, are they trying to write in clauses about about how limited um, maximum usage of AI or are, are you know corporations just saying, no, 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 we're not we're, we don't know where it's going to go. So we're not going to accept that just yet. I mean, on the part of Unifor, I can't really speak to, to what they're doing in the United States, but on the part of Unifor, if I understand correctly, there's sort of two sides to it, right? There's the AI side that basically said exactly what I, what I said before. Like, yes, we want AI. Uh, it's, it's not whether we want it or we don't want it. It's coming. So the, the best way to do is, is transparency. That's number one. The, the, one of the biggest issues with, uh, with uh, the, the auto sector right now, of course, is EVs. And yeah. there's a large, huge debate as to whether or not, you know, EVs necessarily, electro, uh, electric vehicles, necessarily take less moving parts to manufacture, ergo, you need less of a workforce. Now, that is debatable, but that's the other side of it, because these companies that are, that are building EVs are mostly doing it from the ground up. They're not retrofitting. They're not necessarily retrofitting uh, new plants. They're doing that as well, but they're also building new plants. And that's where AI and EV meet. And that's, that's a huge uh not necessarily a problem, but a huge challenge. You have the culmination of two labor-saving, potentially labor-saving technologies coming into one. Uh, and that's uh, and that's going to be a big thing in the union. It would have to be, yeah. Uh, you can check out The Logic. Give it a Google search. There's lots of great stuff about that relationship, like we said, with tech and business. Martin Patrick Quinn, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that's our Quebec, uh, the Quebec correspondent for The Logic. It's a really interesting conversation to end up uh, diving into.